And by the way, you know, when you're, when you're telling these little stories, here's a good idea. Have a point. TGIF, it's Manson Mitchell with Gary Manson, Suzanne Mitchell. A double shot of good conversation with great guests to jumpstart your weekend. Manson Mitchell, you're on the air. Thank you, Eric Kramer. Good morning, everybody. I'm Gary Mance. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. Together, we are Mance and Mitchell in your ears for the hour, and we certainly look forward to a jam-packed hour today. We're going to have a gentleman on. Well, I'm going to get to all of that in just a moment, but of course, we have to pay proper respects to our buddy, bad boy, Benny Mathers at the board today, uh, featuring his Bazooka Joe t-shirt. That's a new one, Benny. Throwing it back for you, Gary. I'm throwing it back for the days of the bubblegum for you. (laughs) I'll tell you, you pop my bubble there, buddy. That's that's the kind of thing I can find on eBay. I've got to have something to uh, intersperse all among all my uh, Alfred E. Newman t-shirts, you know, and uh, sports shirts. Our our guest today, I can only see he has a New England Patriots hat on. I've got the Bolts hat on. Something tells me this may be the last hurrah for this season tonight, but uh, you know, it's nothing that I didn't expect. Colorado Avalanche, a dynamic machine of a team, and uh, that overtime victory was just incredible the other night. I wouldn't be surprised if they hoist the cup this evening, but we shall see. Yeah, man. Well, good luck to you. Yeah, it's like, what, game five? They're down two, technically? Three, no, three, three, to, three one. to one. So they got to win all the way out. Game five. Yeah. Right. There's a lo- so there's a lot going on there. Yeah, I don't think they're going to win all the way out. Oh, and, come and on, Suzanne. <laughs> I know. Where's the love? NHL tradition and common sense is that wherever they play now, the cup goes yeah. in anticipation of right. the winner. So... We're going to watch tonight. We'll just uh, see what unrolls or unravels as the case may be. Our best to you. Suzanne, you know, our good friend, Kim Corbin, down the Bay Area, said, you got to talk to this guy, this author. And I uh, looked at the blurb she sent, and I said, oh, hell yes. This is absolutely somebody who will have a great deal to offer our show and our listeners. And his name is Matthew Dix. He wrote a book called Someday. He's written any number of books. Boy, the books the man has written. This one is called Someday is Today, 22 Simple, Actionable Ways to Propel Your Creative Life. And building a life is a creative act in its essence, I would think. 22 Simple, Actionable Ways. I love that because it seems so doggone pragmatic. All right. So did you want to do the mad props? Oh, let me do the mad props and let's bring the man on. Fantastic. Matthew Dix is a best-selling novelist, nationally recognized storyteller, playwright, communications consultant, award-winning elementary school teacher, humor and advice columnist, minister, wedding DJ, and professional public speaker. He has won multiple Moth Grand Slam story competitions and together with his wife, Elisha Dix, created the organization Speak Up to help others share their stories. He lives with his family in Connecticut. We'll be sure to give out his contact information at the bottom of the hour break. And as Gary said, his book is Someday Is Today. We are very eager today to talk to Matthew Dix for the first time. Thank you for being with us today, Matthew. Thank you. I like to add that I'm a terrible golfer as well. So, you know, there are a lot of problems with me. The accolades were kind, but uh, there's a lot of improvements still to be made. In all of us, Matthew, in yes. all of us. Yeah. <laughs> as much as you have achieved, as much as you've been through, as much as you have survived, quite frankly, Matthew, I think you keep a wonderful sense of humor 
And you seem like the kind of guy who would would rather take a club over the head than actually cheat at golf. I just don't think that you, whether you needed to or not, that just doesn't seem like that is in your character. That is very true. I, uh, I play poorly and I score those poor shots well. I would, I, I take the integrity of the game, you know, very seriously, particularly because I'm never really in competition with my friends. So my score is irrelevant. There is no point in cheating. I'm still not getting close to their scores yet. Are you in competition with yourself or no competition? Oh, no, I'm in competition with myself. I am yeah. constantly seeking to improve in yep. almost everything I do. <laughs> That's how I play golf. Competition with my, am I getting better about the same or worse? So, yeah, yeah that's how I look at it. And I'm not way, opposed to beating a friend, though. If I beat a buddy, that, that oh, is a yeah. good day. It just doesn't oh, happen yeah. very often. That's, yes. a, that's the competitive instinct. And by the way, do you need the name of a good teaching professional? <laughs> <laughs> I, I start lessons next week. <laughs> oh, really? Yes. Fantastic. I have it on pretty good authority that one of our listeners today is Suzanne Mitchell's brother. He has a certain connection to the game. He is a PGA professional. Yeah. Oh, teaching, wow. teaching pro in, in Illinois. Unfortunately, he's not in your neck of the woods. Well, if he wants to come here, I have a very comfortable couch. He's welcome to <laughs> st- spend as much time as he wants in Connecticut with me. He's he's hearing it for himself today. And Matthew Dix wants to know if you want to come and sit on the comfortable couch. <laughs> <laughs> no, sleep. I want him to. I want him multiple days. All right. Beautiful. Oh, Matthew, uh, you know, Suzanne and I were talking as we worked our way through your book. Utterly fascinating. Incredible. There, I said to Suzanne at one point, this is the kind of man who, if you heard all these stories, just as a kind of running narrative, you might say, my God, the lives that some people live. And then you point out, yeah, but this is one guy. <laughs> all he's in one lifetime. You have had a succession of lifetimes and probably some moments, perhaps you'll agree, Matthew, some moments that in and of themselves seem to last a lifetime as you were on the razor's edge of survival itself. That's a great way to put it. I've never heard it stated exactly like that, but you're right. I think that many of the things that I've accomplished over my life are the result of singular moments in my life that just sort of continue to echo on and on. And oftentimes there are those moments you don't wish for while you're experiencing them, but you you don't realize the unintended or unexpected benefits that happen later on. Share as much of that as you would like. And then Gary and I have about a thousand questions to ask you. Sure. Well, I, I guess the story that is most pivotal in the book, or at least in terms of my the way that I think about life, you know, when I was 21, I was managing a McDonald's restaurant in Brockton, Massachusetts, which is a rough town in Massachusetts. It's not the kind of place you want to wander around without knowing somebody. And, you know, I was at a difficult moment in my life. I had been homeless just before that. And I was, I was facing trial for a crime I did not commit. I had been in jail for a little while, but I had finally sort of managed to get to my feet a little bit. And I was working in this restaurant one evening when uh, we were robbed, three men came into the restaurant wearing masks and they had guns and I was managing the store. It was closed at the time. And ultimately I ended up in the back office with them and uh, they wanted to get access to the safe, to a compartment in the safe that I did not have a key for. And there was a plaque actually on the safe that said a manager does not have key and they didn't believe it. And so, you know, they, they pushed my face down onto the tile floor and put a gun to my head and began counting backwards. And, you know, it was one of those moments that I don't know how many people experienced them, but I was absolutely certain that I was going to die. 
Uh, I had already been told by the police that these men were robbing restaurants. They had already killed other people. There was just no doubt in my mind that I was at the very end of my life. And the shocking thing to me was that in those final seconds of what I thought was going to be the end, I didn't feel any anger. I didn't feel fear. You know, the only feeling that I was consumed with was regret. The idea that I was about to die on a greasy tile floor. I was 21 years old and I had not accomplished any of the dreams that I had for myself. And so obviously I survived that moment and uh, I managed to move on. It took me a long time to process that particular incident, but it really has been the moment that changed everything for me. I have sort of become relentless in my desire to avoid that feeling of regret again. And as I've started to lead a life of like relentless seeking of, um, you know, of making those dreams come true, whether those dreams are writing books or playing a better golf game or spending time with my kids or petting my cats, whatever it is, it's that moment that always drives me. It's, it's that desire to avoid regret. And it's a problem people have, you know, if you talk to hospice workers at the end of people's lives in those final days, when they're talking to hospice workers, people will often talk about the regret they feel for a life that was not well lived not for any other reason other than they didn't pursue the goals and the dreams that they had when they had those opportunities. And so my goal in life, one of them is to sort of avoid that regret and help other people avoid it too. I don't wish that moment on anyone, the moment that I suffered in that restaurant, but I hope that by taking that experience and sort of putting it into words and putting it into action, that people can lead more fulfilling lives and chase the dreams I know they have. Reportedly, David Cassidy, we all remember him from the Partridge family and his his uh, time at the uh, top of pop culture, reportedly at the end of his life, on his deathbed, David Cassidy said, so much wasted time. Yeah, yeah, it is a feeling people have all the time. You know, I, I'm, I worry so much. My wife says I need to relax a little, but I do. I worry so much about everyone and the time that they waste, that the that minutes don't feel precious to people. So many of the clients I work with who are trying to make dreams come true, they often think that they can only accomplish things in 30 or 60 minute increments. Or I meet writers who told me they, who tell me they can only write if they have a three hour period of time in a, in a coffee shop, you know, from 10 to one. So all of these crazy constraints in terms of time that people place upon themselves when every minute uh, is precious and, so often, I think what we do tragically is we don't actually think about how we're going to spend those minutes. I think we allow outside forces to dictate our choices. And then we end up at the end of our lives looking back and thinking, how much time did we waste? In your book, you say that people, um, especially creative people, are waiting for the right moment instead of making the time. And Gary and I were just blown away by the whole part one of your book, which is all about time-saving things that you can do one after another, after another, after another. And, and the thing is, you've figured out how to be efficient about so many things, but it isn't about just saving time. It's about putting your time into the things that you really want to do and putting much less time into things that you consider unimportant toward getting to your goals. Do I have that right? Yeah, actually, you said it perfectly, because so often what people think is only that 
saving time will result in you know the achieving of goals when really it is two sides it is i'm going to find ways to reduce the amount of time i spend doing things i don't want to do the non productive things that cause our lives to continue on the things we have to do but at the same time then taking that saved time and putting it to good use rather than what most people do which is i've just saved 10 minutes and my phone happens to be in my hand so i'll scroll for 10 minutes and we know that doesn't make us feel good and that yet that is the decision we make. So it really is that two sides of the coin, the saving of the time. And then when we save that time, making sure that we use it in the most meaningful way possible. You used it in a meaningful way for yourself by deciding that you were going to be a writer. And I would guess probably close to 99% of our listeners in some time in their lives have said, I would like to be a writer. I need to write my story. I need to write the story of my family. Everybody who's listening has a story to tell. You, very busy, were writing. But for how long and when were you writing? So I used to say I write in the cracks of my life. And my wife likes to say I write in the little black holes of my life. So that can mean, for example, today, you know, I got up around, I get up early. I was up around 4.45 this morning, but by 5.30, you know, the cats were fed and my push-ups were done and I was ready to go. So I wrote from about 5.30 till about 6.30. And then my son came downstairs and hugged me and we wrestled for a while. So I got an hour in there. And um, I went for a bike ride. I came back. I did another one of these interviews like we're doing right now. And just before that interview, I, I sat down and realized I had six minutes before the interview was to begin. And so in those six minutes, I did a little bit of writing. And then when that interview was done, between that interview and the one we're having right now, I had about 15 minutes. And so I wrote for 15 minutes in that time. And when we're done, I know I probably have about 45 minutes. And I may write during that time or I may go do something else. But I guess what I do is I just find moments to write because I understand that a book is a collection of sentences and you just have to assemble enough sentences to comprise a book. And you can write a sentence in 10 seconds, 20 seconds, 30 seconds. So if I just write those sentences, if I keep writing enough sentences and if I write one at a time or 50 at a time, eventually they're all going to add up to a book. I believe in incremental progress. I believe in small steps accomplish enormous things. And so I don't need three hours in a coffee shop. I don't need a day in a hotel, which I know some writers use, you know, they'll rent, they'll rent out a room in a hotel room for a whole weekend, because they say that's the only way they can write. And I always think, thank goodness, that you have hotels and Starbucks, because during World War One, there were men in trenches wearing gas masks, as artillery flew over their heads, little notebooks and pencils in their hands, scribbling out books that they hope to someday publish. That actually happened. Can you imagine if those men in those trenches were thinking, if only I had a Starbucks, if only, if only I had a hotel where, I, you know, major, can I spend the weekend in a hotel? Cause I've got some words to put on a page. You know, these are just luxuries that people like to think they need, but they do not. I like the little, the little cracks of time like that. A writer writes, and so people who uh, aspire to be painters or writers or express themselves in any creative way think that, you know, you need a big chunk. I know with my own to-do list, I will see 
where there are some things that get rolled over from week to week to week. And by the time they've been rolled over several times, I go, what's the problem here? Mm-hmm. Well, the problem is it's too big. And I, and I, and so then I have to figure out how do I chunk that down? How do I take a tiny portion of that big project? And that's what you have done in your writing. You take it in tiny little bites And I think that most people would say, well, no, 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 I need to sit down for, you know, half a day or a couple of days to actually really get started. But you didn't do that. You just said, you know, five, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, and I can get a lot done. Yeah. I mean, I'm not opposed to having a good two hours where everyone leaves me alone. That is a delightful thing. And I take it whenever I can get it. But I just maximize all those other minutes. You know, writing is also about revision. So even if you're thinking, well, I can't really create something from whole cloth in 10 minutes, I can go back and I can look at the four paragraphs I wrote earlier that day and make sure they look good. And I can do all of that work in 10 minutes. And I think anyone can do that. So yeah, I think it's I think it's just important that we look at those little, like my wife says in the book, black holes of life. You know, even if you can't use your 10 minutes, let's say, let's say you don't even have your computer around to to use those 10 minutes for writing, or you don't have a pen, you can then accomplish a different goal that would have gotten in the way of your writing later on, you know? So, you know, I'm very famous in my house for emptying half the dishwasher, you know, and my wife will say, why is only half the dishwasher emptied? And I said, well, I only had 136 seconds. So I emptied half of it before we left. And when I get back, I'll empty the other half, you know, rather than standing at the door for the 136 seconds, waiting for my son to find his shoes for the 1 millionth time, I'm going to empty half the dishwasher and that will allow me more time later on. It's just a matter of recognizing that minutes are precious and you never know it more than when you're at your last few minutes and you just wish you had a few more. That is sort of the mental thought I have in my mind at all times is, Nothing is guaranteed. So someday is today. We cannot wait for tomorrow because tomorrows are not guaranteed. Matthew, Suzanne, and I have seen a lot of places together. We've been together over 20 years now. And I can recall, and for us, it was a bit of a pilgrimage. We went to the very first McDonald's, which is something of a shrine in Des Plaines, Illinois. Yes. And we looked through there and I got 15 cents for a hamburger, get a load of this, (laughs) except that I remember I'm of a certain age and I remember eating those 15 cent hamburgers. (laughs) And I looked at that and I was able to put that in the context of what I have learned from people who have worked for McDonald's, some of them for quite a few years. And the thing that I keep getting from these folks, one of whom was actually in management before she got into property management, McDonald's is heralded as having one of the best, let's say most pristine training programs to offer so that if you're a young person and these folks started out quite young, you go through the McDonald's training program, you know, you can get boot camp in the military. That's one way to do it. But let's say you remain a civilian. They tell me you could hardly do better than to go through McDonald's as a young person and acquire a sense of order, timeliness, proportion, and responsibility, lessons that will carry you for the rest of your life. Was that your experience? I could not agree more. I I started training as a manager for McDonald's when I was 16 years old. I got a job and very quickly they said, would you like to be a manager? And it was the first time any adult had basically recognized that I might have some kind of an ability. And so I remember sitting in school. I remember very specifically sitting in a political science high school class with my 
McDonald's management binder out, working on problems through that binder. And I remember my friend leaning over and saying, what are you doing? And I said, I'm working on my McDonald's management binder because I'm done my political science homework. And they all thought I was crazy, but it saved me because when I get kicked out of my house when I'm 18 by my parents, at least I have a job. And absolutely, I fully agree with you. My wife and I were watching the movie years ago, Croc, which is the story of Ray Croc, the founder of McDonald's. And there's this wonderful scene where he's trying to create like the perfect kitchen that limits the number of movements that people engage in. And she never pauses movies, but she paused the movie and she goes, is that the reason you are the way you are? Because she knows that once I find an efficient way to do something, I will do it that way every single time for the rest of my life. And it comes across as a little crazy, I think, at first. But my wife is no dummy. She knows that the guy's written nine books. I get to stay home for 10 years with my kids, you know, for the first 10 years of our kids' lives. But yeah, that's it. it McDonald's really, it gave me such a, such a, such a training and such a understanding of how to get things done well and interact with people. I'm very fond of telling people that if I owned a Fortune 100 company, the one thing I would do is I go to every McDonald's in America and I'd find effective McDonald's managers. Because if you can manage a McDonald's well, you can basically manage anything well. And I would poach all of those managers out of those stores and put them into my company. We have two McDonald's (laughs) that are within driving distance, stop laughing, of our home. (laughs) One of them, one of them is completely inefficient. Half the time they get the order wrong and we leave there laughing. And sometimes when we get our bag, I'll say, don't move till I see whether everything (laughs) is in there or not. Uh And it's a joke. Yeah, you're making your order, you know, it's not going through, you're reading the screen. No, 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 it's not what we said over and over and over again. The other McDonald's never gets it wrong. They always get it right. And they're very fast and very efficient. And we just comment about how could two places within three miles of each other be so vastly different in how they operate. Yeah, it's the manager or the managers or the management team, you know, and I've worked in a whole bunch of restaurants in Massachusetts and Connecticut, and I've seen all sides of it. And yeah, I I could not say enough about McDonald's for what they did for me as a young person. I I went through college managing McDonald's restaurants, and it was it was a lifesaver. I should add that the McDonald's of our preference locally should come with an asterisk because it's true that they never get it wrong. Technically, that's where the asterisk comes in because I've made trips there and I left with more than what I ordered (laughs) and paid for, but I'm not going to say you did something wrong. You did me a favor. (laughs) Well, I'll tell you, there may be some strategy there because when I was managing McDonald's and I realized like, oh, we're going to have two extra cheeseburgers here that we're going to have to throw away because, you know, they're, they're only good for so long. I would just toss them in customers' bags. I'd say, just give them away. Drop them as a bonus for a customer. They'll drive away. They'll realize they have an extra cheeseburger uh, because it's going to give them a good feeling about what they've experienced here and they will come back. So rather than wasting food, we used to call it waste. I would say, don't waste it. Put it in a bag send it out as a surprise and they will be happy and they will be more likely to come back. 
Now let's go back. This is great. <laughs> McDonald's, you're welcome. All this, all this talk here. Matthew, uh, you saw the movie and you're ahead of me, my friend, because I, in I fully intend when this show is over, I'm going to get on eBay and I know it's there and I'm going to order the movie Croc. I've been getting some sent in here, so I'm building up my video library accordingly there. But in the movie Croc, is there anything in there about... A, an incredible moment in the life and career of Ray Kroc that has anything to do with the San Diego Padres. <laughs> There's nothing that I recall. Is there? Okay. Uh, no, I, I'm going to have remember. to watch. Well, let me put it to you this way. Ray Kroc was at one time the principal owner of the San Diego Padres baseball. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I did know that. Yes. And um, the Padres, you know, who don't have that illustrious a history. Uh, they haven't won a World Series. They've been to the World Series there a couple of times, I believe. But uh, during the uh, Ray Kroc days, they were pretty miserable as a product on the field. And so on one uh, less than illustrious occasion with fans in the stands who were just not happy with the team's performance, they matched the attitude of Ray Kroc himself, who happened to be in attendance that day. So Mr. Kroc got on the loudspeaker at the stadium in San Diego to publicly apologize to the fans for the poor play of his team. And oh. I'm thinking, oh my God, I mean, you couldn't just send a memo, you know, but if this is the perfectionism of the man. Yeah, I love that. I, you know, I do a lot of business consulting, and that is an outstanding strategy of transparency and vulnerability. Years ago, Do um, Domino's Pizza came out, and their CEO said, our pizza is terrible. We know it's terrible, and we're going to fix it. And since that announcement about 10 years ago, it's been one of the best stocks in um, in the S&P 500. It, like that ability to say, we're no good, but we're going to be better is a really powerful message that you can send to consumers. A sports reporter put a microphone into the face of Tampa Bay Lightning Bolts coach John Cooper after the first game that the Lightning Bolts lost miserably out in Denver. And John Cooper said the better team won, yeah. meaning Colorado won the first game. He said the better team won. And my eyes went like big, like saucers. Really? I mean, I just thought that was very gracious of him. Not to say that, you know, it was bad refing or, you know, something about the other team was cheating or something else. He just said, nope, the better team won tonight. And I yeah. thought that is amazing to speak truth like that. It's courage, really. You know, there's a lot of uh, there's just there's a lot of people in the world today who believe that saying great things about yourself that are untrue is better than saying truth that might not be so pretty. And um, it takes a courageous person to acknowledge their faults and, you know, seek improvement. Absolutely. We are up on our break here, our one and only break of the hour. Let us go ahead and take that. Folks will be away for just a couple of minutes. And then when we return, we would like to get very helpful in our consideration of some days today, 22 simple, actionable ways to propel your creative life. Matthew Dix is our guest. He is a multi-published author, as earlier indicated, and he has some great strategies for you if you want to get more out of living, more to show for yourself in this one life that you know for sure you'll ever have, reincarnation to the side, how to make more of what you've got, more of your own blessings, your own talents. So give us a couple of minutes and we will be right back. We are Manson Mitchell and you are tuned in to Seattle's home of alternative talk, AM 1150.
Hi, everybody. This is Anson Williams from Happy Days, and I'm so excited to tell you about American Road. It is the best car travel magazine in the world. They have the most fantastic adventures detailed in each magazine with all your itinerary. We could just jump in the car with your family and have the most fabulous adventures you've ever had in your life. Please get a copy of American Road and start your own adventure. Staying connected with Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell is easy. Just go to manceandmitchell.com for the latest info on topics and guests. Friend Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell on their Facebook pages and like the Mance and Mitchell show page at facebook.com slash Mitchell. If you're on Twitter, share a follow with Gary and Suzanne at Mance Mitchell. Join Gary and Suzanne Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for an unusual show that covers everything from personal growth to the paranormal. Here's an amazing act. Here's a tremendous act. Here's a startling act. The amazing, the thrilling, the greatest, spectacular, incredible, exciting, wonderful, world fame, most unusual novelty act. The home of the A-Team of Alternative Talk is ManceAndMitchell.com. Heard right here on Alternative Talk 1150 AM or streaming live from your computer anywhere. Terry Loving wants to help you with your online marketing challenges right now. She has several courses she is giving away to help you get your business working for you online. Yes, giving away. WordPress websites are her specialty, yet her technical skills go way beyond that. Check out her blog at terryloving.com or email her directly at terry at terryloving.com. That's terry at terryloving.com. I'm Gary Mance. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. We're a couple of baby boomers who bring you a talk radio mix of metaphysics and music, politics, and pop culture. And you never know which celebrity will join us for an interesting conversation. Mance and Mitchell is Boomer HQ, Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 on 1150 AM KKNW. Your home for alternative talk in Seattle and Western Washington. Like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash 1150 KKNW. Welcome back to Manson Mitchell and our guest, Matthew Dix. And I am woman, Helen Reddy's uh, comeback music here. That's as much as we want to go over today with regard to overturning Roe v. Wade. We're talking with Matthew Dix. We have so many other things to talk about. We'll get to the politics another day. Uh, Matthew, if people want to get your book or one of your many other books or find you online or connect with you, I know that you have many, many things going on. And I really would like you to take a few minutes to talk about the various things that you're into so that our listeners can find you and find you easily. Sure. Uh, well, they can find me at matthewdix.com, my name, and they can basically find everything there. Uh, my books are wherever you get books. So, you know, you can you can go to your online bookstores. I, I love independent bookstores. I think you should probably walk into a little bookshop. And if my books aren't there, ask them to get them for you and they will. I, I believe in supporting those businesses. But you can find my books basically wherever you get books. My wife and I also, we do a podcast on storytelling. So and it's called Speak Up Storytelling. And you get sort of to listen to a great story and then hear us deconstruct the story and and argue over whether we agree or disagree on things. And um, that's a good way to sort of, if you're interested in storytelling, that's sort of a weekly class on storytelling that can be really helpful to people too. 
So I do a lot of writing. I have a blog that you can follow every day. I write for Slate Magazine. I write an Ask the Teacher column. So if you have kids in school and you have questions, you can you can send questions in or you can read the questions people are asking. There's a lot of there's a lot of challenging questions, as you can imagine, coming in right now for me that I have been answering. So I, I stay busy. I do lots of those things. But if you go to MatthewDix.com, you'll basically find everything that I am doing. And I just want to mention that Matthew Dix is not D-I-X, it's D-I-C-K-S. Just like Dick, Jane, and Sally, Matthew Dix. Fun with Dick and Jane. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm, I'm so happy that you do what you do for a living, Matthew, because my father, who was a Matthew, there was a high school teacher for 31 years. And he, this was in Southern California. One of the classes he taught, he taught English and history, but there were times uh, in a given semester when he would teach freshman composition. (laughs) And uh, I know how challenging it was for him to communicate his own passion and love for the English language in a way that could be translated, if not transmuted, into the writing of his students, because here again is a life skill. It will serve you going forward. And he knew that he had some pretty raw material to work with, but I think he loved the challenge. Certainly the same would be true of you. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I've been teaching for 24 years now. I teach elementary school. I briefly considered teaching high school English, and then I spoke to some of my high school English friends and discovered how much bad writing they are forced to read every weekend and quickly ran away from that notion. But, you know, I work with 10-year-old kids, and I adore them. They make me crazy on some days, but uh, they are they I have twins that are 11 there, Matthew, so I totally understand where you're coming from. <laughs> yeah, I got you. But yeah. we love them, don't we? Yeah, we do. Uh, I would not be doing it if I didn't love the kids, truly. I, you know, after 24 years, there are other things I could be doing, and I sort of really love going and seeing those kids every day. So, yeah, any teacher out there who's um, doing the job, especially – given the current situation we have, the climate, the pandemic, all of these things have made teaching really hard. My wife is a kindergarten teacher, and um, she says that I'm the only happy elementary school teacher in the country right now. And I don't think that's true, but I do know that it's really hard for a lot of people. So credit to all the teachers out there that are doing that good work. In terms of And I just, there's so many places we could go there because you have such an incredible curriculum vitae, Matthew. But in terms of working with people, just last night, Suzanne was reading this to me. I thought, isn't it the way I've had like experiences from people, though it wasn't specifically that they sent me their writing for some helpful review, some helpful comments there. But you actually... And quite open-heartedly, if I may say, you have invited people to share their writing with you because you'll give them a fair yet compassionate review and analysis. And if you don't get it to some people, I've had this kind of experience where if you don't tell them what it is they want to hear, when they want to hear it, all of that going on, sometimes they get back to you with some feedback that you didn't ask for, despite having done your best for them. It happens to all of us. Yeah, People are often their own worst enemy, and it really is a tragedy. I actually think that a lot of times, a lot of times, the more creative a person or the more desperate someone is to be creative, I think that results in in them making bad decisions and being desperate and asking for things in a way that is not going to help them in any way. So. I try to be so forgiving when those situations happen. I try to give people a chance to like make a mistake, make a blunder and then improve upon it and change their mind. And oftentimes they don't, they, 
they really create problems for themselves. But I do try to help. I remember when I was a person who had never published a book and didn't think I ever would and didn't have any resource to go to. And so I am thrilled uh, to be able to give someone a little bit of a boost if I can. And that brings up another story from uh, early in your book. There, This is something, well, let me put it, I'll tell you what happened with us, Matthew. There was it now. We do uh, subjects here that are, you know, would be termed paranormal, uh, metaphysical, spiritual. We get into some of that. So we get into a lot of stuff here on this program, pop culture, certainly. And, and then, of course, good writers like yourself. I can recall a time, and I'm going back probably, oh man, about a decade now. And Suzanne and I have been doing this for over 15 years now on the air. But there was someone of my acquaintance there who had what might be termed, well, I think it would be termed a paranormal experience, at least in her mind. And she set upon the intention that she was going to be a professional medium. Okay, well, they abound in our culture today. That's a whole substratum of society. It's, it's a fact, whatever you believe about the phenomenon itself. But here's the thing. And I just, you know, I went straight to that when I read this portion of your book. This lady who is no longer with us, but she did, uh, she made one appearance on our show. There, she had a sister who died, I believe she was stillborn. And yet uh, this lady felt that her sister from the other side was communicating things to her, a mediumistic type of experience. Why do I say all of this? Because it was intriguing intrinsically at the time. But when we started talking, we did the interview. And then after the show, because we were already personally acquainted, this lady got in contact with me. She had no training, none. And yet one of her very first questions to me conversationally was, so how much do you think I should charge? <laughs> and I had to, I'm I probably wasn't very polite about it, but what I indicated to her is that before you hang out that shingle, why don't you get some training? Everybody begins at the beginning. And as you advance, you will acquire a degree of professionalism that may allow you to enter the world that you choose. And if you have business relationships and you choose to advertise, you're doing it on the basis of whatever certified training you can receive. And certainly the gift of experience, because there are no shortcuts that didn't land very well. You probably know what story this is likened unto, because when you tell the story about the lady that really wanted to get that novel out there because she was ready to go international with it. And then, of course, there's the whole question of international film rights. And I wouldn't be surprised if she was already thinking of what her, her uh, comments would be when she receives the Oscar for writing a, the best screenplay of the year, all of that. And when you sat down with her to hear all of this, what did you discover, Matthew? I discovered that, and this has happened many times with me, she had not yet written a single word. You know, is <laughs> I cannot tell you how many people I have met over the years who want to write books and sit down with me to ask about the economics and the agents and the film rights and all of these things. And I just wait for a moment. And then finally I say, so how is the book coming? And I just brace myself because so often the answer is, well, I haven't started writing it yet. You know, I met a woman once who had an idea for a six series set of books with a compendium, like a nonfiction compendium to go along with the books. And it actually sounded really intriguing, her whole idea. And then I got to the question, which was like, how far are you in? Did you finish the first one? And she said, oh, I would never write it until I sold it. I would never waste my time. Now, 
we all know she never actually wrote those books and never made a dime on her writing. Uh, but there are a lot of people who, you know, the phrase is they will, they wish to, they like to have written. They want to have written, but do not actually want to write. So they like the idea of sitting and they like the idea of sipping on a latte and they think all that looks quite lovely, but the actual hard work that is involved in writing or any creative endeavor, truly, you know, oftentimes that escapes people. And that is a tragedy because I think the name of the book is Someday is Today because I just think most people live lives where they believe that someday they will begin pursuing their dreams and instead they just die. I think they eventually run out of some days and die and do what Cassidy did at the end of his life said, look at all that wasted time. Now, I hope he didn't have a lot of regret because he certainly accomplished enormous things. But even someone who accomplishes as much as him looks back and says wasted time. Can you imagine someone who didn't actually chase a dream how they feel at the end of their life? You, you write in your book, rather than saying yes and leaping into the abyss, people wait, calculate, ponder and prepare there's always a better time the right time conditions that must be met in order to achieve the perfect time yeah. and that's just it there is never a perfect time never it's do it or don't do it it and really is Ask and you really bring that home in the book just do it, it it's perfection so often just leads to stagnation you know the desire to make that perfect first step where we have to understand that our first step is probably not going to be a good one that we're going to make a lot of mistakes along the way but we have to we have to begin in some place just ask someone who unexpectedly got pregnant right and had a beautiful baby when they were totally not ready they didn't have a crib the house wasn't ready they were hoping to save more money and yet they end up with a beautiful child. And when that child is 18 or 22 or on that child's wedding day, they're not going, you know, we just weren't ready when that child was born, right? They're thrilled. And if we just waited till we were ready to have every child or to chase every dream or to buy the house we've always wanted, we wouldn't do nothing. Nothing would ever happen. So we've got well, to move forward. That is the life of regret. That is like, well, when the time is perfect, then I'll get started on that. The time is never perfect. They never get started. They come to the end of their lives and said, oops, I'm out of time. Yeah. I'm out yeah. of time. And I, and I really meant to do that thing. Yeah. I met you know? a, I met yeah. an 87 year old woman in a nursing home once. I don't know if I tell the story in the book. Uh, yes, you do. Go ahead. I do. My wife was with me at the time. She's standing next to me. And the woman came up after I had done a talk and she said, I've got a story in me. It's really great. And I said, terrific. I said, get writing. And, you know, she said, I'm going to write that book someday. And then I said, how old are you? And she said, I'm 87. And I said, I think you should start writing right now because you don't have a lot of time left. And my wife <laughs> elbowed me really hard, you know, she was like, and the woman was upset. She was not happy with what I said. My wife wasn't happy. But, you know, that was more than a decade ago. And we know that lady didn't write that book. We know that she's probably dead and she didn't write that great story. And that story yeah. died with her. And that's what happens to everybody, whether it's a book or a painting or you want to, I don't know, you know, become a blacksmith or learn to play the piano. All of these things don't happen because everyone's waiting for the right moment. And the right moment is right now. If you're sitting down watching a television show, turn off the TV and do something meaningful because you will not remember the show at the end of your life, but you will remember the day you started playing the piano. 
And you provide the right context, it seems to me, from the fullness of life, if we're fortunate enough. Quite often in your book, you refer to your 100-year-old self. So this is the full panoply of experiences and the range of opportunities. And then the question is thrust before you. What are you going to do with all that time? Yeah, it's the idea that we are very unreliable in the moment. You know, if I was really doing what I wanted to do right now, I would be playing golf while eating a cheeseburger and somehow playing poker simultaneously. Those are all the things I would want to do right now. But what I do instead of relying on sort of this present moment of me to make these decisions, I ask the 100-year-old version of myself, the one that I am perceiving to be at the end of his life, lying in his deathbed, looking back on this day in June, on June 24th, 2022, what's the 100-year-old version of myself asking me to do with this day? And sometimes golf is great and cheeseburgers are fantastic. And I really like playing poker and wrestling with my son and sitting under trees and playing with cats and all of these things. And those are all great. But if my life is only consumed with those things, or if my life is consumed with, I binge watched a Netflix show that was really great. You know, if that's how I spent my day, my 100 year old version of myself is going to be so annoyed with me for wasting time like that. So I just always look forward to that person. And I say, how should I spend the day, sir? Because he knows better than I do the meaning of life and the importance of wasted time. So I'm essentially looking forward to David Cassidy and saying, Cassidy, what should I do with this day? Except instead of Cassidy, it's me. You know, wasting time, regrets, uh, frustrations, unfulfilled potential, that's all kind of on one side. And then on the other side, what what do you get when you actually write a few sentences or manage to save some time doing something really efficiently what what, what is what's the payoff well the payoff is you reach that day where you actually have done a thing that yes. either you've always wanted to do yes. or even you know in a sort of machiavellian way you do a thing that you know many people have wanted to do and did not do, but you managed to. You know, my friend Jenny just finished a book, her first novel, and now she's looking for an agent. And the mistake she's making is she should first have a party. And that party should have a banner that hangs over the table that says, I wrote a book and you didn't, right? And that should be, she should have pizza <laughs> and cake and invite everyone over. Because even if the book never gets published, she's done something that almost everyone at some point in their life say they're going to do and almost everyone in their life never does. So just the actual assemblage of sentences into a coherent story is a remarkable achievement. And so it's incrementalism. It's that decision every day to do a little bit more in chasing my dream, because the day you get to achieve that dream, the day I got the call for my first novel being published, that, that a publisher actually was going to pay me money and put my book in bookstores that was worth every moment I spent in chairs writing that book for the three years it took me to write that book. So, or, or the time that, you know, on the golf course, I get the, I get the birdie because I've been working on my chipping all summer long and I chip in a birdie. And I think, you know what, all those hours I spent chipping away, trying to get better, this is it. And when you get that moment, there's nothing like it. So that's what you get if you do the work. I guess I'll ask out of pure curiosity, have you ever gotten a hole in one? No, I have not. Uh, I Me haven't either. Even, <laughs> I haven't really come close. I have a friend who I 
I have friends who I've introduced to golf. I have a friend who's been playing for six years now. I introduced him to golf. He has three hole-in-ones. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Wow. He's an extraordinary athlete who got very good very quickly. I regret ever introducing him to the sport. (laughs) (laughs) There also, I just thought I would throw this in. As someone, I am a great admirer of the Uber Pro perfectionist and one of the all-time great directors who was so perfectionistic that he probably completed about half the film projects that he could have and i'm talking about stanley kubrick but in 2001 a space odyssey there at the end you have the astronaut who is on his deathbed and now he's a weasened old man this is kind of his hundred year old self you know yeah and what i I, I took from that that scene that sort of just left the movie for my money anyway as an open-ended question as an as opening an opening to consider the mysteries of life all those unanswered questions he's there on his deathbed and he receives a vision of the monoliths those very mysterious structures what could they possibly mean who created them who put them there the monoliths and he's as he's staring at them you get that it was a personal obsession with which he was very up close and personal, a kind of intimate experience, and yet he didn't have the answer. And he would draw his last breath not knowing, but it was worth pursuing, even though he probably knew he could not get the ultimate answer while he was still in the body. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's it's essentially akin to any researcher who was chasing down the cure for cancer. You know, I think a lot of them understand that they're going to make progress along that path but they probably will not realize the end of cancer by the end of their lives. But that, you know, we're all sort of contributing in small but significant ways to the betterment of the world or the betterment of humanity. And I think we do it in things as simple as writing a book or painting a painting or petting a cat or improving your golf game or serving a great cheeseburger out of a McDonald's drive-thru. All of those things make the world a little bit better. And I think everybody has that inside them. Everybody knows that they have a little piece of greatness inside them that wants to come out and be shared. And then ah, it's just going to be easier to watch TV. Yeah, well, easier or, you know, I think part of the problem is fear. I, I really think those first hard steps, you know, those things that we have to do. That's scary for people. It is frightening to think I'm going to go and fail. You know, I wrote four terrible novels before I wrote the novel that published. Now, thankfully, I didn't have to write the whole book. I wrote about 20,000 words of each, read them and realized they were terrible. But I had to be brave enough to write bad things in order to be able to write those good things. And I think a lot of time it is just fear of failure fear of the unknown that prevents people from taking the steps they need to take. I I have a friend who did voiceover work years ago. He went to a class. He did all of this work for it. He became very good at it. And then he never pursued it. And just recently he said to me, why didn't I chase that dream when I was like 27? I was all set to go. I had a certificate. I could have started applying to places. And I said, I don't know why. And he said, because I didn't think I was going to be able to do it. And it was fear. It was, I was afraid of being rejected. And so he didn't do it. I, um, I, I ran a Toastmasters club corporately, and I was always bringing in people from other departments to join our Toastmasters club. And I went to the head of HR and I said, you know, I'd love to have you come as my guest, come for lunch, come see what our meeting is about. He said, I would never join a group that I wasn't already good at. (laughs) And I was scratching my head. (laughs) 
you know, how yeah. do you ever get good at it if you don't come and start out at square one and find yeah. out how to get better? I, and I'm a big I believer in learning new for the guy. Yeah, yeah, I'm. You have to do things you're not good at. It's yes. really, yeah, and it's really important to say I'm not good at this new thing. I'm going to go chase it. My father-in-law quit golf because he couldn't break a hundred. He said, I just never felt like I was going to break a hundred. So I quit playing. And I thought, well, that's a tragedy, you know, because yeah. you, you lost time with friends, time in nature, exercise, just because you couldn't play as well as you wanted to. Yeah. The people who have succeeded the most claim that they've also failed the most. They had to fail so many times before they got to their success but we're not willing to be failures. We're not willing to fail at something and consider ourselves failures rather than failing at that thing. We personalize it and say, well, I'm a failure. Not that I failed to bake a cake, but you know, I'm a failure as a baker and, you know, to, to just keep going and doing something that interests you. And it seems like every time you got interested in something, you pursued it to its logical end and you you either got into something for five or 10 or 20 years or you said ah, you know i tried it and i i didn't think it it was that great but then those things led to other things and that's the other thing i found so interesting about the book is you open one door and then there there's this portal to another 20 doors there of things that you can do yeah it's very popular these days to encourage people to say no and to limit their limit what they're doing so that they can focus and preserve their time. And I'm opposed to that. I say, say yes to everything because a yes can become a no, but a no, once you say no to an opportunity, that door is often never opened again. So we say, yes, we walk through the door, we give it a shot. We see what the landscape is like. And then if we say, this is not for me, but at least you've given it a chance. At least you've allowed yourself to step through that door for a moment. And those unexpected doors, the ones I would never think of walking through, the ones I forced myself to walk through, they have often yielded the greatest results. So I'm a big fan of every opportunity that you presented, say yes. And if it eventually becomes a no, there's no shame in that, but at least you've given the opportunity an honest effort. And in the last 30 seconds or so, Matthew, time has flown, which tells me we've had a good time. You're in the same wheelhouse as Suzanne Mitchell. And this was a revelation to me only within the past couple of days. Both of you believe in the value of keeping yourself juiced by maintaining a compliments folder. Yes, I, I didn't, I do that. I've been doing that for years now. So you receive an email or a message or a compliment from someone, I save it and I hold on to it. And if I'm emailed one, I snooze those emails ahead so that, you know, six months or six years later, that email lands in my inbox a second time. I believe we don't get enough positive feedback from people. There's not enough positivity in the world. So we can maximize the positivity we get by taking it and repeating it over and over to us. Like take the nice things people say to us and don't let them go. Take them and take them to heart. The book yes. is Someday is Today, 22 Simple, Actionable Ways to Propel Your Creative Life. Matthew Dix, sir, it was a pleasure and an honor to meet you. Let's do this again. Yes, anytime. Thank you so much. It was really a wonderful conversation. Thank you. And stay tuned later for American Road Trip Talk with host Gary Mance. We dissent and we vote. Have a good day, everyone.